Hey yo, Brent went to daughter, calls went to text, planes turned to drones, robotics in effect. Everybody using apps just to place a few bets. With media 2.0, what's coming next? Oriad Chikani, thanks very much for coming on New Media 2.0. Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to come on and have a chat with us. Really good to be here. Thanks, Chris. Now, I thought the first place to start would be uh, this notion that you started your first business as a 14-year-old, which begs the question, why weren't you underage drinking at parks and, and gate-crashing parties at, uh, at that age? Mate, funnily enough, um, it sort of was like that. Me and a group <laughs> of friends had this little bet together um, of who could reach level 99 in a game called RuneScape first, and the winner you know, would sort of get the bragging rights and you know, about 50 bucks, I think that's what we put up. And I actually hit that one afternoon and I went to boast on Facebook to all my friends and I sort of had this moment where I realized people would recognize that I spent probably 50 hours, 60 hours a week nerding it out on this game. So I decided to start my first website where I could share that content with a group of my friends, ended up sending it to them. We kept on, you know, sort of using it. And then a year or so later, it exploded and became this sort of fully fledged business that we had advertisers and subscribers and yeah, the rest is sort of history. So I think that was the reason why. (laughs) And you're now CEO and founder of Gamers Group. Maybe talk us through what you guys do and what the vision is there. I originally started the Gamers Group with a group of friends uh, out of university. We wanted to replicate the first business that I started when I was 14, but do it for all video games instead of a certain game. Um, We ended up getting into the Slingshot uh, Accelerator program. Craig Lambert and Trent Bagnell selected us out of probably about 400 applicants. And we originally were building a social network for gamers, providing gamers with a unique place where they could come on, share, connect, and meet like-minded players. We ended up building that for probably about nine or so months until we recognized that we weren't getting the viral coefficient that we needed for a social network to succeed. Long story short, you need every user that comes on to at least bring another friend. Unfortunately, the gamers weren't doing that. You know, they already had their little private community. So instead, we decided to pivot that out and provide services for video gamers um, to come on, they could, you know, sort of find people specifically for the game that they were playing. They could recruit, to, you know, players for their teams and actually find players where they could really engage with and play games with. And so we wanted to make sure that that platform actually succeeded. We wanted to sort of guarantee the traction. So in late 2015, we went out into the market and we found websites that were offering player and team recruitment. And we found two websites that were doing that and we ended up talking with both of them and we recognized that they were really, really keen to sell. So we were blown away by the fact that they were happy to sell an audience of 250,000 registered members, but for very, very cheap. So ended up buying both websites in late 2015. In early 2016, around February, we merged both of the websites together and we saw phenomenal traction. And what we recognized at that point was there was this sort of emerging market of third-party services developed by young, you know, college students that were, you know, between the ages of sort of 19 to 22, they built these really large audiences, but because the companies that are developing the games were so focused on the actual video game development itself, due to the increase, you know, of competition, these third-party services were developing the audiences, but because they were run by young individuals, they weren't generating the revenue necessary to keep, you know, sort of growing it. We could come in, we could acquire these businesses, uh, reconsolidate them if we need to or relaunch them if we need to and develop a real business model underneath it and grow the audience and and therefore grow the yield that we derive from that audience. So in 2016, April, you know, we ended up wanting to pivot 
into providing esports news and content because we saw that there were hundreds of thousands of people watching these esports video games, so these esports tournaments, but no one was really providing the news for them. It's sort of uh, akin to stumbling upon the NBA and there's no ESPN writing about it. So we wanted to do that. So we ended up going out again into the market. We found four independent publishers that were doing exactly that. We bought all of them for an unbelievably low price, merged them together in April of 2016, and the thing exploded. You know, very quickly, uh, we grew to about 350,000 registered members. Sorry, uh, 350,000 sort of readers. We had about 400,000 registered members uh, on our team and player finding website, and the business continued to rapidly grow. And to make a sort of long story short, since 2016, April, we've acquired about 32 businesses to date. Wow. We've grown from, you know, uh, at the start, 40,000 monthly active users to now serving over 21 million. We've become one of the largest esports media companies globally. And we did that through this sort of acquisition model of buying undervalued or under, you know, developed businesses, putting a business model underneath them and really, you know, sort of focusing on the core offering to the users. And, you know, that's the gamers group today. And so for those that aren't that familiar with the, the industry, how do you find define the difference between esports and gaming? That's a really good question. Um, esports is probably best defined as competitive video gaming. Yep. You know, so video gaming is the act of sort of playing game or watching video games. Uh, esports is taking that to the next step. You're either watching somebody that's playing for money or you yourself are playing for money. And so that's probably, you know, the best way to look at esports is competitive video gaming. And if you were to combine the two industries, esports and gaming, how big is that, that total industry? Probably about $150 billion US dollars. It's actually larger than... I believe music and TV together, which is quite, wow. you know, extraordinary. And remarkable growth too. I mean, 150 billion is a big number, but, you know, take us back to where that was, say, five years ago and what sort of growth's already been experienced over that time. I believe five years ago, I actually remember this from one of the decks that I had, it was about 91 billion. Okay. So it's grown about 60, 70%. And the, I'd say the crazier growth is looking at esports. In 2015, the industry was essentially non existent you know it did exist it was sort of probably more embryonic you know it was a, it was a start of something that was going to rapidly grow it had probably about a hundred million viewers and you know that might sound like a lot but for one of the most engaged industries in the world you had three billion gamers only a hundred million were watching you're now talking in five years it having grown to 400 million viewers and three billion gamers so what we're going to see is that continued sort of overlap and intersection between video games and esports where more people are going to begin engaging with an esports section. To give you just a quick example, Riot, who owns, you know, League of Legends, is using esports more and more and more as a sort of marketing tactic and marketing tool for the video game itself. So it's not just this sort of uh, subsection that, you know, developers just slightly support. It's now becoming a real tool to enhance an actual game IP and asset. And who are the consumers? Talk me through the demographics. Who's playing the games and who's consuming the esports content that's being put out there? Also a great question. It's actually quite interesting because they're not, they're not actually exactly the same. Um, so in terms of who's playing the games, you know, you're seeing an audience predominantly between 13 to 34-year-old males on, one, on our flagship platform, Dot Esports, which is one of the largest publishers in the world for esports. We only track 18 and above. And the largest audience is made up of 18 to 24-year-old males, which makes up just uh, shy of 50%, and then followed by 25 to 34-year-old males. 
Unfortunately, we're only seeing an adoption rate of about 8% uh, readers uh, being female on our websites. Um, esports is probably one, one to 11, you know, in terms of female to male ratio, um, but that is continuing to grow, which is great. On the gaming side, you know, females uh, skew a bit more upwards to about 30, 40%, which is great. Um, in terms of who's actually watching the esports, Muzu released a study a couple of years ago saying that 40% of viewers of esports are actually have never actually played the game that they're watching, which is really cool. It's really exciting to see that people are engaging in different titles that they may never have played, may never have been involved in or of any sort, and they're actually quite interested in understanding. And that's why I'm saying, you know, as the years continue to go by, we will see esports become this entertainment-based business rather than just a subsection of the greater, you know, gaming industry itself. And what do you attribute the difference between men and, and female players of, of gaming and, and esport consumption as well? Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. Again, I think it might, and I, I probably might get a bit of flack for this. I think men tend to be more competitive when it comes to games. You know, when I've played games with either males and females, I've noticed that uh, sort of males tend to want to compare their scores and, you know, see who comes out on top in, in games that are not even competitive. You know, but whereas I think females just genuinely uh, enjoy the story, enjoy the gameplay, enjoy the teamwork and have, you know, mm. probably a healthier relationship with the game itself. So I think, you know, males probably aspire at a greater ratio to become these esports fans, whereas the females that are watching it just genuinely enjoy the content. Um, so I'd say that's probably, you know, a bit of a reason. I also think there is less... Uh, I'd say there's less of a welcoming nature within the esports industry, unfortunately, to females, which is something that needs to be worked on and something that needs to be improved. Last year, we had a strong um, sort of Me Too outpour of women that had been, you know, uh, sort of had a, probably the best way was terrorized or mistreated or harassed by males in the industry. And that was extremely, extremely disappointing to see. And, uh, you know, obviously, I'm not a female, but I, I, I'm sure with that you know, amount of negativity around female involvement in the industry, that would be a hindrance to women entering the space. And that's very disappointing. But it, the trend is upwards, you know, more females are joining the industry, more females are watching esports, and that's great. We want more of that. We want more of the, you know, females that are involved in gaming to get involved in esports because the more diverse the community, the more welcoming it is, the better it is for everyone. And so $150 billion industry today... <laughs> significant industry who's lost market share as a result of of the popularity of gaming and esports just remove the letter e <laughs> sports uh yeah. sports have definitely seen the biggest hit you know we've spoken with countless of sporting teams sporting leagues everything around the world and the number one question they have is what the hell is this mm. and once i've explained it to them they go okay how do we get involved i don't know <laughs> honestly i i'm not 100 percent sure i don't think you know, any, I, I don't believe anyone that says they know how sport companies can sort of lessen the impact of esports. I don't necessarily believe them. You know, I, I think we've had a lot of consultants come out and, you know, help these sporting companies get involved. And what you end up seeing is a 24-month initiative that gets shut down. Yeah. I don't think that's the way. I don't think, you know, sporting teams should necessarily buy esports teams unless they want to. Um but some I, have I, tried I to insulate the risk by doing that, haven't they? We've seen some NBA teams get involved. Even some AFL teams have purchased some esports teams as a way, as a way of mitigating that risk of having their consumer base cannibalised. Yeah, I think you know it's natural. Some sports will have a natural esport counterpart. I think it was 
the F1 when COVID hit, they moved everything to esports and it was a great, phenomenal experience. But we're talking about race cars, you know? Yeah. It, it might be a lot easier to move that into an esports product. Whereas, you know, and NBA did it very well. They have the NBA 2K League and that's phenomenal. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think the AFL, for example, has a great following in the AFL video game. Yeah. You know, so their fans might not be interested in watching people competing on the AFL game. So I think sporting teams have to sort of dig a bit deeper and, you know, come up with their own idea of how they can begin to engage the, this community. The number one thing I always say is the young people, the, you know, the 13 to 18-year-olds and the 18 to 24-year-olds aren't watching video games or aren't watching esports because they really like the team Cloud9. They're watching because they like the game. So just because they buy an esports or they start an esports team, you can't have them playing your traditional sport. You need to be willing to engage with different IP such as League of Legends and Fortnite should you want to acquire this younger demographic. Otherwise, they're not that interested in you know, consuming AFL or NRL content. They want to see their favorite players you know, playing Fortnite and playing League of Legends and so forth. So I think sports are definitely the ones that are struggling uh, with the growth of gaming. And there's been a couple of hits in terms of uh, sporting clubs that invested in esports teams, but there's been by far many more misses. And to me, it looks like an incredibly challenging business model. You've got really high fixed costs, uh, in particular the players who take the lion's share of the revenue, yep. limited loyalty from those players should they choose to go to another team, and really variable revenue. It's sort of the exact opposite of, of what you want in a, in a business. Um, I guess, how do you view esports teams broadly as an investment proposition? I'd probably rate them as a bad investment proposition. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, I can probably talk about that in multiple different ways, but I think if a team is big enough for you to invest in, it's probably overvalued, number one. Yeah. You know, the teams that have risen in valuation significantly over the last five years were the ones that started out first and had, you know, a decent business model underneath it keyword had you know these businesses were okay when it was a one-man team you know they had a couple of employees and so forth you know that they could afford to build the business on that revenue base but as vc and private equity money sort of flowed through these businesses aren't operating on a cost base of a million dollars a year they're operating on a cost base of 15 million dollars a year or 20 million dollars a year and you know so that's number one number one i think is the team is coming across your desk as an investment opportunity you're overpaying for it significantly. You can look at the Forbes list yourself and see that the most valued team in the world is worth about 400, 450 million, and its revenue sits at around 20, 25 million. There's a reason why they're not sharing their profit because it is a, a loss-making business and the unit economics don't add up. That's number one. Number two, the players have all the control. They take a 10, 15, 20% split of the winnings and the team is left with you know, a minority 10, 15%. So that's also a bit of a problem. You can't actually secure your IP because these players are so dominant in their negotiation mm. capabilities and strength that they're free to leave wherever they, whenever they want to. Finally, you're beholden to the IP holders. If you want to play in the biggest esports tournaments, you are going to be paying a license fee between $5 million to $20 million. So there's a huge fixed upfront fee. And then finally, and here is the biggest challenge. These games are not 40-year games. They're not 100-year yeah. games. There's no new NBA being released, you know, in sports. So, you know, if you've got an NBA team, you probably have a very, very strong asset. But if you have a League of Legends team, what's stopping another game from being released a week later or a month later and taking away the market share from the viewers? Nothing. 
We saw that happen many times. We saw that happen with Fortnite, with PUBG, with you know uh, uh, Among Us, and a bunch of other different games that just pop up. And game developers, there's hundreds of them and mm. tens that are worth billions. And what they're trying to do every single day is work to release a viral game, work to release a really strong hit. And what happens when that happens? Your audience drops. And so I look at esports teams as being a very, very difficult investment to make. I think they they lack the economics for a strong investment that's a five to 10 year sort of outlook. And so esports team, we've wiped that from the uh, the watch list, but there is going to be a huge amount of wealth created in, in this industry. We know Twitch appears to have been a brilliant investment by Amazon. What sort of other opportunities do you see out there where the potential for wealth creation exists in this industry? Obviously a biased answer. I think media is the game very, is very The strong. game is IPO. Is that what we're all doing? We're just waiting till you guys go public? <laughs> Potentially. No. But I, so you I, guys I, are the ESPN, really, of, of esports or of, of gaming. Um, and hence you're insured from a lot of those risks you, you mentioned about changing game um, preferences. You don't have that that cost of players and, and the liability then particularly potentially walking out and, and going to another team, it must feel like your business is insured against some of those risks that esports teams have to deal with. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, not arrogantly, but uh, we've built a business that is not dependent on one distribution channel. We've built a business that's not dependent on one audience and also one sort of IP. We're console and game and esport agnostic, which is really, really good. Um, I think media you know, benefits from that. You mentioned that Twitch, phenomenal acquisition by Amazon. They bought it for like $900 million and they say it's worth $30 billion now in six years. It's, you know, it's crazy. Um, I think there's many opportunities in this space where you can sort of bank on the certain uh, market factors of esports. I think, you know, data analytics companies are worth, Mm. are going to be worth so much more because what you're seeing is an increase in player salaries you're seeing an increase in the price pools and also an increase in the viewership numbers. These players are still operating on archaic methods of data analysis and data storage. So any company that comes in and solves the data sort of issue where, you know, how do you get the access to the most accurate information about a player performance will be incredibly worthy. Um, Platforms related to distribution and licensing and media, you know, I'm not talking about sort of digital media, but more about, you know, distributing the content, creating content around it, working with the publishers on enhancing their content offering. Very, very strong. As I mentioned, esports has gone from has gone from being this one little thing where it was a loss leader for the businesses and now it's actually a marketing tactic. You know, they look at it as the world championship of their bread and butter, which is their IP. And of course, media. I think media has proven to be very strong. There's a couple of media business in the space, including us, that are profitable. Uh, and that's really exciting because the yield right now from esports is very low. If you look at any of the, you know, sort of the analysis on the market, traditional sports see revenue per viewer anywhere between $7 to $30, $35. And in some cases, $50, $60. Esports sees $4. You know, and it's one of the most highly engaged, you know, audiences in the world with extreme levels of discretionary spending. Like I'm talking extreme levels, you know, they're not spending $40. They're donating $10,000 in instances. They're buying skins hundreds of dollars a month. They're doing so much with their money because they love it and it's part of their entertainment. But this industry is essentially recession-proof. When COVID hit, a lot of businesses were decimated. A lot of businesses were unfortunately struggling Gaming saw a skyrocketing, you know, skyrocketing numbers. We saw an overnight increase of our readers by 40%. 
it, it was ridiculous, you know. So I think this industry has a lot of different players, but I think to sort of do an executive summary, I think you're looking at distribution, data, and media as a very, very strong offerings that allow you to sort of mitigate the risk of shifting uh, changes in game in the game mm. sizes. Uh, not having to bet on a certain horse in terms of which team you're investing in and also not betting on the game developers or publishers, which is also another good investment because they tend to perform very well. And so you mentioned uh, Twitch there and the uptick in valuation it's had since Amazon acquired it. Talk me through some of the numbers around um, consumers that watch Twitch or maybe a, a, a helicopter view of what Twitch is for the, the listeners that yeah. and viewers that don't know, but then just the amount of time that an average consumer spends watching Twitch who, who's in that space. Yeah, perfect. Uh, I think the best way to sort of explain Twitch is a website where you could come on and there are people, uh, I probably did that very badly, and people live stream certain things on Twitch. You know, at the beginning, Twitch started off as a website where players could share a live stream of the video games that they were playing, but that's now transformed into people doing classes, people just having chats with their communities, but essentially it's a live streaming platform. Um, Twitch was acquired by Amazon in 2014. You know, there was a bidding war between Google and Amazon. And I think Amazon sort of banked on the ability for, <clears throat> pardon me, on their ability to sort of grow that audience significantly with, you know, their other offerings. And they've done that very, very well. Twitch now has, I believe, 200 to 300 million unique users per wow. month. So it's one of the largest websites in the world. And this audience spends ridiculous amounts yeah. of time on the website, you know, uh, People are spending anywhere between three hours to 12 hours a day just consuming content, mm. engaging with the community. It's more, uh, for, I think from what I last heard, people spend more time on Twitch than they do on Facebook. You know, yeah. I think Facebook has an average time on, you know, their app, I think of about 14 minutes a day. From what I understand, the average user on Twitch spends anywhere between an hour to two hours on average wow. every single day. So that number is enormous. You know, and somebody might correct me, you know, I might not have the most latest figures, but this audience is captivated with the content and that allows Twitch to charge some of the heaviest ad rates in the world. For a group of people, it's quite hard to market to young men too, isn't it? Because they aren't as big consumers of media and even social media as women generally. So it's, it's, it's sort of filled that void of targeting young men quite specifically, hasn't it? 100%. That's spot on. I think, you know, 18 to 34 year old males are not engaging with social media as they were. They also have ever increasing levels of ad block. You know, on our website alone, we see ad block rates of 65%. Hmm. So this audience does not want to see ads. And what Twitch has done is found a way to do that. You know, <laughs> they've done that very, very well. And they still are seeing like, you know, decent levels of ad block. So this is an audience that they've mastered. They've reached very, very well and they'll continue to do so. And extrapolating from that, I've had this idea or this, you know, there's this view more broadly that the real world led the virtual world. And now in some ways that's almost being turned on its head. You know, you've got Nvidia that started as a video gaming uh, manufacturer. Now they're involved in autonomous vehicle uh, technology. That's, that's really going to change the way the whole world works. One day we've seen cryptocurrencies, which were once just a fantasy of virtual world games, now having real world implications in financial markets. Is this a trend you sort of feel you can see happening? You know, can you see a day where tomorrow's soldiers are the best esports players now that are, are you know, fighting wars in 
unmanned drones. Um, it's it's not it's it's a, it's potentially a scary world to envision. But it, the, the more I look at it, it, seems the virtual world is having a bigger bigger effect on the real world, and in many ways leading the world. Real world. Perhaps it wasn't a generation ago. No, I think it's very interesting. I think you know I've, I've stopped making bets on where this world is going to necessarily go only because it's so surprising all the time. But I think you've sort of really hit the nail on the head that the virtual world is rapidly growing, changing and increasing much faster than, you know, the real world. So I, I definitely think that concept of, you know, plucking uh, soldiers out of esports players is, you know, potentially something in the future. Um, I believe the Navy and the U.S. Army have increased their, their marketing to esports fans and gamers are quite significantly over the last two years when our Congress is actually arguing whether or not that should be allowed. Mm. You know, so it's very interesting to see that the government alone is identifying this trend of finding people with extremely high reaction times, mm. finding people with the ability to sort of, as horrible as it sounds, aim very quickly, you know. Um, so there's definitely implications of esports and, you know, gaming in the real world that we're only starting to see right now but we'll continue to see. And on other sides of it, you know, video games uh, have always sort of mimicked reality, mm. not in the sense that, you know, you're playing in a fantasy world, but more so, you know, the idea of, you know, having uh, the most expensive gear in the game is very similar to that of real life. You know, it's the equivalent of buying really expensive shoes or buying, you know, really expensive handbags. You're, you're doing that in the game by buying the most expensive skin or having, you know, some sort of uh, tag in your name that indicates you're of a superior level of status. And so, yeah, I, I think video games uh, and virtual worlds in general will continue to sort of mimic that of real life, but they'll do it in really grand ways. Like cryptocurrencies, when they started out, they were worthless. Mm. And now they have market caps of about a trillion dollars, you know? A trillion dollars is very little when you look at the financial system. So who's to say that Bitcoin can't be worth 100 times what it is today? No one would have believed it would have been worth $50,000, but it was, you know, so it, it's very interesting. I think we're going to see a very, very strong uh, move towards the, the increasing importance of, I think, the virtual world over the next five to 10 years, especially with the increasing um, disparities between wealth of, you know, the lower 20% and the, sorry, the higher 20% and then sort of the rest of the 80%. So it's very interesting. I think, you know, we're definitely here. Um, we're about to see a huge shift. I'm, in, I'm intrigued by that idea around that you touched on status in the virtual world and, and what people are doing around buying skins or or different items for their their, their avatar to to I guess show off their their status. And it's no difference to you know men in their fifties buying a thirty thousand dollar road bike or or women buying a Louis Vuitton <laughs> handbag or it, it's something that all people do. Um, but if you haven't had any exposure to the virtual world, it it seems particularly strange. You want to walk us through some of the things people are spending money on in, in the virtual world and, and what those things do and, and the, the real world jobs that those items are creating. Yeah. Um, the most interesting one is a former executive actually bought a $67,000 Counter-Strike skin. And let me explain that. So in the game, you get to use a gun and you shoot with that gun, you do whatever, but you can design that gun to look better. And somebody spent sixty over $65,000 on that gun alone. Um, and then no one, else can, no one else can buy that gun, obviously. That belongs um, to, to him? Yes. Yes, unless he chooses to sell it. Yeah. And there's different levels of that because, you know, the gun can be spent. And 
it's it, it's mind blowing, you know, when you hear figures like that. So people are buying in-game aesthetic items so that they can improve their look and their sort of status. And other people do other stuff. So on Twitch, you know, you have this chat where everyone is, you know, communicating and chatting, and people donate money so that their name can pop up in the chat as a donation, or you can buy okay. membership so that you have a different color of your name to indicate that you are a supporter of this streamer. And some of these donations go anywhere from a dollar to tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And again, it's all about, you know, having this sort of level of status where your name might be displayed in the stream. So that you can do that. You can do a lot of different things online. I think you, you can spend a lot more money online than you can offline, you know, from what it sounds like and what I've heard. Um, but it is creating a lot of jobs. You know, a lot of these streamers um, have, you know, teams ma helping them manage their sort of online schedule, having them manage their communities. You know, these some of these streamers have communities of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people on a Discord, which is a communication, public communication system, uh, communicating. They, they, they've created meaningful multi-million dollar businesses off their communities and channels, all through donations and sponsorships. You know, so very big business, um, very unique to the fact that it is based around these new, sort of certain mechanisms online, but it all mimics real life identities. It's yeah. all about joining the most exclusive club or if you're part of, you know, if you follow a, a band, you want to be front and center. You want to be, you know, one of their biggest, like their fans. And it, it, it's the same thing, but they're just doing it online. And so you've got, Who's making the skins, for instance? Is it single developers or their, their whole businesses making lots of different skins a la a, a manufacturer in the real world and, and distributing? How's that one business unit working? It's actually the game developers themselves. So they okay. realize that these fans are going crazy for the game so that they could sell these in-game skins for real money. And who would have thought? And so yeah. the game developers and publishers are milking these video games for ridiculous profits to give you an example um valve which is the which owns the largest game distributor in the world called steam they own dota 2 which is one of the largest um video games sort of in the world and the largest esport in terms of prize winnings every year they host a thing called the international okay the international has the largest prize pool of any esports tournament in the world it is funded through the purchases of the players. And so I believe 25% of every purchase goes to providing a prize pool for these esports um, teams and players competing. I believe the largest ever price pool was about 40 million US dollars. Right. So that's 25% of the purchases. So they would have sold $160 million US worth of in-game items so that they could have funded this price pool of $40 million. So these players are spending significant coin on these in-game purchases. God. So we, we've spoken about some of the, the, the positive implications and jobs being created out of the industry. There is also another side to it, and particularly around parents of, of young children playing single shooter games like Fortnite and the, the, uh, the potentially addictive nature of these games. What's your view on that? And do you think some of those concerns are, are reasonable? And how do you feel about some of those single shooter games and the, the time spent that young minds are, are, are spent consuming them? I think it's a very reasonable sort of concern for parents to have. I think, you know, video games, they're still quite new, you know, mm. so not understanding the full implications on these video games is definitely fair for parents to have. I think for anything that your child 
or children are consuming, you need to have some level of caution and wariness to ensure that, you know, there is a balance. I, I think the concerns that a lot of, you know, politicians have and a lot of people, you know, uh, that might be a bit older and not have been exposed to video games are sort of unfounded in many instances. The claim that video games reduce empathy, you know, was probably the same claim that was there 20, 30 years ago, maybe even 40 years ago, that rock music, you know, is music of uh, evil people. Mm. Um, there's a lot of these claims that are made when people simply don't understand something. Mm. What you actually find is video games in a healthy balance, uh, with sorry, a healthy balanced moderation actually provides significant benefits for people you know video games connect people they bring them together they provide them with that social aspect that they need in their life it's not a replacement for going out with your mates or seeing your friends in person but it is an ability it provides the ability to stay connected and stay in touch with your friends and also engage in a sort of a very easy to do hobby um, that's just very enjoyable for a lot of people that's number one number two it's a very cheap form of entertainment that allows people to benefit without having to spend, you know, a lot of their money doing other things. And then finally, I think one study that sort of should be looked at is the study of video games being used in developing minds to help improve teamwork and coordination. Mm -hmm. And also I think it's hand-eye coordination as well. So it's, video games have been proven to improve developing minds, again, in moderation, to allow them to make decisions a lot faster know judge uh, the factors in a certain decision you know with greater accuracy the more that they've done it improve their ability to sort of communicate with other team members when they're do when they're playing and partaking into these video games and also just generally better decision making overall so i think there's you know uh, there's a healthier way to look at video games rather than it's good and it's bad yeah i think you need to look at it from a very balanced approach and say if you're spending 14 hours in the game you've got a problem but also if, you know, your child is spending an hour or two hours playing an appropriate game that isn't necessarily, you know, rated MA, there's no, there's not much negativity in that. Of course, if you have an eight-year-old that's being exposed, you know, to a game like Call of Duty, which is quite uh, real life, it looks a lot like real life and they're being exposed to some, you know, how do I say it, uh, very graphic scenes, it's probably not a, a good thing to have. So I think a, a balanced approach and a, appropriate outlook is the best way for a parent to look at it but overall video games are not bad and they can be used for some really really valuable sort of uh, activities uh, and modes of development for children my old football coach mick malthouse used to say that too much water and you you drown not enough water and you die of thirst and, and somewhere in the middle is is an appropriate amount of water that we all need to live and it, it's probably uh it's probably true of most things in life 100 percent. that's spot on Mate, it's been brilliant, Riyad. Really appreciate you taking the time, particularly for a, a relative outsider like me. It's um, it's a fascinating industry to learn about, and um, just tell the viewers where they can uh, where they can hear more of your thoughts or follow Gamers Progress. Yeah, um, no, it's been great. Thank you so much, Chris, for your time and the really good questions. Um, to anyone that wants to learn more about the Gamers Group, just search us online. Uh, we've got a company website. You can read more information about us and our brand. So. More than happy to speak with anyone as well that's always interested in learning more about the esports space. So, yeah, feel free to reach out. Look forward to reading the prospectus when you're ready to cash out and, uh, <laughs> and buy a mansion up there in, in Sydney. Thanks very much, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it as well. If you're enjoying New Media 2.0, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.